High end over end variety. And Amati from his 45. He's got a lane. And he's got speed. Look out. Beat, beat. The Ducks are in the end zone. Touchdown. This is the Duck Pod from the Register Guard Newsroom. Gordon head to head for sure. Mitchell goes in motion. They hand it off. Oregon sports beat writers Ryan Thorburn and Steve Mims. All right, we're back. Ryan Thorburn and Steve Mims. Uh, it's Nevada week for Oregon. They are coming off a 27-21 loss to Auburn in Arlington, Texas. Steve, uh, what was your takeaway from that game? Obviously, uh, it was kind of one that got away for the Ducks. Yeah, I think you have to look at just again, it's one of those almost like Stanford last year in the sense that I mean, there are probably six plays you can go through, and if one of them turns out differently, you know, if Addison catches a touchdown, if Lewis makes the extra point or the field goal there, uh, you know, if Herbert doesn't drop the ball and ends up to get a touchdown on that drive, and then you know the the fourth and one obviously, and and obviously you know the jump ball at the end if if Oregon gets in there and gets the pick, I mean, any one of five or six plays go the other way, it's Oregon's, but uh, obviously Auburn, you know, you're impressed that. As bad as Bo Nix looked in the first half, what he did in those last couple drives was pretty impressive. It was uh, a flashback from the Stanford game last year in terms of it was a big game. Oregon seemed to be in control, and then Mario Cristobal's decision-making in crunch time is under the microscope again. Uh, You know, this time that fourth and one where they call a couple timeouts. Obviously, they thought Justin could go back in. Um, with a timeout, he was not allowed to do that. Uh, Tyler Shuck had to take that snap, and they ran right into 11 Auburn players. It was just a very predictable, unfortunate situation for Oregon. And uh, j- just what do you, what are your what's your confidence level right now in, in this coaching staff's ability to handle those tense moments in big games? Well, I think it's under question. I the the criticism he's getting that I disagree with is sort of the you know, taking the clock down with five plus minutes. I mean, they were up one with five something left. To me, you're still playing to try to score. I mean, even if you move the ball, you may lose it, leaving them with the field goal. I think you're still trying to score there at least a field goal, so you're up by more than a field goal. So, I mean, I get that you can run it down to five on that, but that's, to me, I'd I'd rather have my offense kind of going and when they're ready, snap it, and rather than sitting there and and kind of having more chances to think about things. So I don't have a problem with that one. I would have liked to see, you know, the fourth and one handoff. I mean, no shuck comes in, and, and I'm sure everybody thinks, well, there's no way they're going to let him throw it. He hasn't really thrown an important pass in his college career. But for me, when you need one, you know, I, w- I, I would think you could kind of fake that and roll him out, have a tight end roll out there with him, and, you know, maybe shuck can get out looks, and he's got a way to the sideline to get the yard. Or if not, you got a Breland running a little trail there, and he could throw it over to him. I just – the idea that they didn't feel like shuck could make that play. I mean, we've heard nothing but positive comments about him throughout the last year and a half that – they can win with him, and, and that wasn't, you know, hey, Braxton Burmeister in the second half against Oregon State, you know, where they just weren't going to throw him. I mean, this is a guy they've preached that they feel like they can win with. I would have thought you'd bring him in there and do something a little bit more creative than that. So, But then again, you know, I mean, the the, the great tragedy of it is, you know, the, arguably the most important play of the game is the one game that you're – the one play your starting quarterback couldn't make. I mean, it was an incredible coincidence that the one play he sits out isn't a – First and ten, you know, we're shocking him and do it. It's a fourth and one on your last possession, what turns out to be your last possession and also comes after, you know, a, a hit that if, if they call a late hit there, which it was close, could have gone either way. If you get a late hit there, suddenly Shuck's in there again on a first and ten and it's not a big deal. So it was just one of those, you know, the football gods. Sometimes the plays like that end up in the most odd of times. Yeah, I think if you're an Oregon fan, you have to be a little bit encouraged by 
the first quarter and a half where Marcus Arroyo's game plan and the script he had was working really well against Auburn. He was able to scheme Johnny Johnson open for a 49-yard touchdown. Uh, you know, Herbert obviously had the uh, cross-his-body, cross-field touchdown pass to Spencer Webb, a redshirt freshman tight end who they put at receiver to make up for some of their injury problems there. Um, you know, I, I don't know what Marcus can do when C.J. Verdell runs into Justin on first and goal inside the 10 and Auburn takes it the other way. Just he can't, you know, catch the ball for Brian Addison. I just I just think, you know, it's a collective effort of, you know, coaches dropping the ball a little bit with the timeout situations and some of their situational calls and and players, frankly, not making routine plays. Yeah, and Arroyo did say today that kind of the one thing he looked back on with maybe some regret was the fact they didn't go a little bit more vertical. I think he felt like uh, he maybe should have put a little bit more trust in some of the, those young guys rather than kind of, you know, trying to keep it more simple for him. And I think that's something that fans have said. And I, I you know, I, I give Marcus credit. He didn't come out and say, hey, we'll do everything the exact same way again. He did say, hey, that's one thing where maybe we could have sent those guys down a little bit. Because, again, you know, you, the quarterback you've got, you feel good about the receiver's you know, I mean, if they can get some space, I mean, any, you know, they get a first down in some of those situations, the third and seven, obviously. And, um, you know, some of those, it would have just taken about one more first down for them to almost get to the point where Auburn would have really been panicked on that last drive. Defensively, you know, there was that first touchdown during Auburn's comeback. I think Oregon had 10 players on the field. They got caught in tempo. But otherwise, I thought for Andy Avalos's first game as defensive coordinator, they really held up pretty well against a physical team. Uh, played a lot of guys. Uh, Javon Holland was spectacular all night on defense and special teams. Troy Dye made a lot of tackles, was unable to get to uh, Bo Nix on the key fourth down in time, but you know played really hard. 15 tackles, a career high for a guy who's piled up so many tackles over the years. What was your thoughts on the defense? Yeah, I think one of the questions I had when Jim Levitt wasn't brought back was just the idea of going into such an important year for this program with so many seniors in there and making a change at coordinator you'd end up with a situation where you do have an early season game where things kind of take a little while to get going. And obviously no one even before that, that Auburn was going to be the team. I, I thought that was kind of a risk that Mario took in making that change was that, Hey, you're going to disrupt all this. Well, like you say, I mean, Andy Avalos's unit certainly wasn't the, the issue, you know, giving up 27, probably a little bit more than you'd expect against Auburn, which isn't a real high powered team. But for, you know, for the most part, they give up six through about the first 35 minutes and then got put, you know, obviously in some short yardage fields or some short fields. And then the last drive, you know, again, Nick's just kind of moved him down there, converted some big plays. So I think overall you come out pretty enthused with the performance of the defense, knowing, you know, you got a couple more games now with Nevada and Montana where you probably got a little bit of time to fine-tune some things. And I think you can feel like Andy Avalos will have this defense by the time Pac-12 come, play comes, probably going about the way he'd like it to, and, and rather than any sort of a, a monstrous adjustment coming into a new system. All right, well, let's take a break, and then we'll get into what happened in the Pac-12. Hi there, it's Les Schwab Tires. You know, we've been helping keep folks safe on the road around here since 1952. That's why you can save up to $152 on a set of four select light truck and SUV tires during our fall tire sale. So swing by or book an appointment at LesSchwab.com. Les Schwab Tires, doing the right thing since 1952. Limited time offer while supplies last. Discount depends on tire size and type. Cannot be combined with other offers. Details at LesSchwab.com. All right, Steve, we're back. The uh, Pac-12 slate started with uh, a real disappointing game for UCLA losing at Cincinnati. Uh, you had two teams in the bottom of the top 25, Washington State 
and Stanford win. Uh, Washington moves up in the rankings, or actually moved down a spot despite uh, beating Eastern Washington handily. And then maybe the class of the conference, Utah, handled BYU on the road. What What are some of your observations from around the league this week? Well, I think I was just looking at Washington's schedule, and again, you know, it's almost like it was before last year to where you know, there's just not even a mention of them in the national title conversation because you know it started with Eastern Washington. They go into Pac-12 play this week with Cal, but then they've got you know I know they've got BYU, which suddenly after Utah beat them doesn't look real good. Um, I'm forgetting who the other one was, but it's another kind of Group of Five type deal. So it just kind of amazing to me, you know, as everybody talked about, well, Oregon was the only Pac-12 team that really had a chance, you know, because of the having Auburn. It really does become you have to have one of those, or else when they say Washington's 13, they could get to eight and zero, and I still don't think people be talking about them in the CFP range just because there's going to be nothing in the non-conference. So it's it's you know, and Utah's the same way. I mean, beating BYU isn't going to do anything to help them there too. So it almost feels at this point, yeah, like these non-conference games are teams getting ready for for Pac-12 play because that's going to kind of be where, you know, the the biggest thing that most of these teams at this point can aim for now is a Pac-12 championship and a Rose Bowl berth. Yeah, I failed to mention USC lost their starting quarterback yeah. to a season-ending knee injury. So, uh, you know, they're another program that, you know, if they had a great season would be in that conversation, and now they're not probably going to be able to do that. They have a really tough schedule. Uh, do you think it is Rose Bowl – for the winner and that's all you can do i mean it's tough because you kind of have to pencil clemson alabama possibly even georgia in there and then you know you're fighting with you know notre dame and and their you know national brand and and the michigan ohio state winner and oklahoma it's just tough for to envision the pac-12 without uh, without oregon setting the tone against auburn getting in that playoff yeah, and it's crazy to say after week one that yeah, I mean, there's got to be a route for somebody. But like I'm saying, I mean, just look at Utah, and Washington. I think we've seen, you know, when Washington left that a couple of years ago, that you've got to have kind of a marquee non-conference game, and if you don't, you're not going to get there. Now, I'm also not going to say that Washington or Utah are good enough to get there, even if they had somebody on there. I mean, I don't think the Pac-12 has a team right now that, you know, especially with Oregon now out of it. You know, I mean, technically could get into it by running the table, but you know, I don't look at Utah or. Stanford or Washington and them as being, wow, this is a team that, you know, could take on some power this year and, and work its way into the college football playoffs. So that might be the biggest problem for the conference. It's not the fact that they don't have the non-conference game. It's the fact that you don't look at any team out there and think even if there was, you know, an Auburn on their schedule or a Georgia on their schedule, there was a team in this conference that would be capable of going down and winning a game like that and then making a run through the Pac-12 without slipping up a couple times. When you look at the SEC, I mean, they had Tennessee losing at home to Georgia State. They had... Ole Miss losing to Memphis, Missouri losing to Wyoming, Arkansas barely beating Portland State, mm-hmm. and we saw Portland State last year. I mean, that's kind of feels like a loss. But the SEC, it doesn't seem to affect them because Auburn, LSU, Alabama, Texas A&M, I mean, the list goes on. They have six teams in the top 12 this week. So uh, when your marquee programs are doing well, it seems to not affect the you know, when you have dings like not in the non-conference play with some of your other teams. And right now, uh, the Pac-12's marquee teams, USC and Oregon, are, you know, not getting it done. Yeah, nobody cares what Vanderbilt does. Nobody cares what Missouri does. Nobody cares what, you know, Ole Miss does for the most part. And for the most part, people are looking at the top six or seven. And like you say, the top six to seven are good enough to potentially get two or three of them in the into you know contention at least for the college football playoffs so when you got it that good at the top nobody's worried about the bottom that's why you know when people look at a ucla or this and that it looks like boy this conference not very good at the top and it's really bad at the bottom too 
and I don't think the SEC cares about what their last three or four do. Now, I do think they'd like to get Tennessee back into relevance. You know, that's a flagship program for them and one that they should like to think would be up there in the national prominence. So I think they'd like to get them back up. But, you know, if Missouri loses to somebody and Arkansas loses and Vanderbilt loses, I don't think that worries too many of the powers that be over there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, nationally, people might not care about the bottom, but we do. I know you went to the Oregon State game. Mm. They lost Oklahoma State. Uh, you look at Cal, they, they had a kind of a struggle with uh, the fighting Dan Hawkins, uh, Cal Poly. Uh, you know, what else was going on at the bottom? Anyway, uh, what was kind of your impression of Jonathan Smith's team? Looks like they're pretty good on offense and once again maybe a long year on defense yeah it looks like the exact same thing as last year to me I mean I, I really thought that defense would be better you know not you know not great obviously but you know just some of the you know the the two transfers they brought in and you think some younger guys getting there but watching it just and I think Oklahoma State's quarterback their quarterback's really good uh, you know the redshirt freshman who was there uh, and certainly they've got one of the better wide receivers in the country running back Chubba Hubbard ran for 200 so that is, I do believe, an elite offense that they went against. So I'm going to reserve some judgment on their defense. But at the same time, you know, when, when it's your home opener, it's at Friday night in the spotlight and you give up scores in the first seven possessions. And it's not like they're all short fields. They were going the distance. When any one of those, if you just get a stop, your offense is scoring enough to kind of keep you into it. But then your offense is low and your defense can't get a stop. And suddenly it was just kind of over from there. So I was, I was a little disappointed in Oregon State's defense. I thought you'd see a little something more there. Um, and the offense was kind of what you thought. I mean, they do have playmakers. And Luton, watching him, he ran a little bit more than maybe he has in the past. And he said afterwards he's never going to be a dual-threat quarterback. But he was able to throw on the run a little bit. Jefferson, they didn't give the ball a lot to. And that was surprising to me, even though they were behind. Um, to see him get 14, 16 carries a game I thought was strange. But Isaiah Hodgins is really good. Tight ends are there. So there are some pieces on that on that team offensively to score. But, again, I just, I'm not sure that their defense, unless – Oklahoma State was just kind of a mirage, and because of their of their skill level, I'm not sure they're going to stop people again this year. All right, let's take our final break, and then we'll look ahead to Nevada. Hi, Ryan Thorburn here, sports reporter at the Register Guard. I've covered a lot of your favorite sports memories in recent years. Marcus Mariota being presented the Heisman Trophy in New York. Oregon blowing defending national champion Florida State off the field in the Rose Bowl. Sabrina Ionescu becoming the face of women's college basketball while helping transform the Ducks from Pac-12 afterthought to national powerhouse. No other media company covers Oregon athletics with the depth and quality found at DuckSports.com. But in order for the Register Guard to continue its rich history of local journalism, we need your support. Please subscribe and support our advertisers to help us chronicle the Ducks and take you behind the scenes to create more memories in the years to come. All right, Steve, when uh, the schedule came out and you see Nevada on there, you're like, okay, that's a, a nice bounce-back win for the Ducks. But the Wolfpack making national headlines as their walk-on true – I think he's a true freshman mm-hmm. – kicker belts a 56-yard field goal to beat Purdue. Uh, I remember last fall Purdue was you know the talk nationally when they trounced Ohio State. So that's a nice win for the Wolfpack to get over a Big Ten team in Reno – can they pull, make it two for two against the Power Five against, a, I would presume, a, a very angry Oregon team? I did a podcast today with somebody in Nevada, and they said, you know, boy, if Nevada were to win this, that would be the biggest win in program history. And then he said, what would be the reaction in Oregon if Oregon were to lose this game? And I said, <laughs> it wouldn't go over well. I said, in fact, if this thing's close in the third quarter, you're going to see a pretty silent stadium. And if if they lose it, the uh, the Mario Cristobal watch would certainly be underway if this uh, season started off 0-2. But It'll be interesting to see what, you know, I, I think that's, you know, Nevada 
they're going to come in feeling like they can play with them. You know, that's the one thing that whenever Purdue does. I mean, it's not a great team, but I think they now feel probably pretty good about themselves. And if, you know, if Oregon comes out and is sluggish, I mean, if we see the first two or three drives go some drop passes, some three and outs or something, Nevada hangs around and suddenly, like I say, Oregon starts looking around thinking, man, this game's closer than we thought. And the fans are starting to get a little quiet and Nevada's hooting and hollering. And I, I could see it be something where it could carry into the second half being interesting, but you figure at some point Oregon's personnel is going to pull away. Yeah, I think Oregon's offensive line held up pretty well against Auburn and the game before that. They were in a slugfest against Michigan State, so I think they're looking forward to playing a team that's maybe uh, not quite as formidable up front. I'm not saying they're going to steamroll, but most fronts they're going to face now are going to seem relatively easy compared to what they saw in Auburn, which is loaded with NFL guys. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the first drive from Oregon was, you know, eight plays all on the ground, 80 yards and a touchdown or something to where Mario just says, look, let's go out there. Like you say, you guys have been pushed, you know, felt some pushback from the Auburn people. Well, go up against these guys. You're not going to feel the same and, let you know, kind of give those guys their confidence right there and go out there and just run it and run it and run it. And assuming that Verdell and Dyer are back and healthy and they've got their guys in there, I wouldn't be surprised to see this, like I say, especially early. Just Oregon goes out and pounds it on the ground and figures they can kind of put a couple touchdowns up. Get certainly have no problem getting first downs on the ground and, and sustain some drives that way rather than coming out and throwing it all around. And that leads to one interesting storyline: Panay Sewell, Oregon's outstanding left tackle, will probably be searching for his brother on several occasions. His brother Gabe, I believe that's his name. Gabe yeah. is Nevada's leader on defense, so uh, kind of an interesting storyline there. Another one. Will Jawan Johnson be back? You know, the Penn State grad transfer, the big receiver everyone was counting on, unable to go against Auburn, considered day-to-day at this point. Uh, same for Cam McCormick, the tight end. So you're looking at, you know, Spencer Webb playing more wide receiver, uh, possibly a Patrick Herbert signing sighting this week, uh, a guy who knows how to catch passes from one Justin Herbert. Uh, what are you kind of looking forward to this week as far as uh, the storylines going into this one? Yeah, if you see uh, a couple walking down and they've got a half Nevada, half Oregon shirt, that will be the Sewell appearance. Yeah. But they said they'd be wearing that. And he did sound like he was going to seek out his brother. If there's a play going downfield and he sees his brother coming around, he might take a shot over there. Of course, I'm assuming the younger brother, Noah, a five-star, who's considering Oregon to be in the crowd watching too. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I think McCormick, I think it'd be hard to see him come back at any kind of full strength at this point. I would be surprised these next two weeks they try to keep him pretty limited and get, you know, get him out there going in games. But if he's ready to, but I, I'd be surprised to see him start or play really extensive until Pac-12 comes. Um, Juwan's the interesting one. Again, if there's any sort of feeling like, hey, this thing needs another week or two of rest to get it ready to go, I, I think, you know, if, if he wasn't good enough to play against Auburn, you're certainly not going to put him out there against Nevada or Montana figuring that you can get him. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I think they'd probably like to get him out there if it's a full go. But again, if it's something where they feel like, man, if he tweaks it again and now we're looking at two to three weeks into the Pac-12, I, I think they'll be pretty cautious with him. Well, we'll get into this more on Friday's podcast, and and we'd like your help in that. If you want to send Steve or myself a question, whether that's to our emails, tweet at us, uh, any way you want to do it, um, please do that, and we will try to get those answered on Friday uh, during our mailbag segment. And be sure to follow all of our coverage at ducksports.com, and thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you on Friday.